Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Hi, I'm Patrick Flynn. I'm the Director of Public Affairs at Social Ventures Australia. Um, and I'm sitting down today with Elise Sainty, who's a Director in our Impact Investing team. Elise is finishing up at SVA after 10 years and I wanted to chat to her about her experience in the evolving social impact bond market because she's one of, if not the most experienced social impact bond practitioners in the country. So to kick off, your background before you arrived at SVA was as an actuary. Mm -hmm. um, most people I'm guessing don't know what an actuary is or what actuarial analysis is. Can you explain it to us? Well, the skill set that you, that you have as an actuary is very much, there's a lot of stats and, 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 and analytics. Um, often found lurking in insurance companies and wealth management companies and actuaries are good at understanding probability and, and projecting into the future. Um, I haven't done for many years a lot of technical work but one of the things I've actually enjoyed over the last decade is being able to almost go back to my heritage and my roots um, with my actuarial training and apply some of that in this very different space. So yeah, actuaries are the, the skills that I've lent on have have been around that, you know, at a very basic level, even just things like modelling and so forth. But but just being able to understand what could happen and and, and how do you make judgments around around those probabilities. Yeah, I, I always think about actuaries as being very good at understanding whether the, the likelihood that something's going to happen or not, mm. and then understanding what the cost might be associated with whether or not that might might happen. Um, uh, is that about right? Yeah, and drawing on data to help that form that view of what the right. likelihood. And I think that that's such a critical part of the social impact bond work has been that it is very immersed in data, and that can be a hard thing in the social space. And I think that's where some of the you know the opportunity and the challenges of Lane, but which we can talk about. But yeah, being able to. To, to leverage data to form that view on what can happen and then, as you say, attach value and that's something that governments are always very interested in, what's the, the value of, of, of a change. Well, I'm really interested though that, what do you think there is about those skills as an actuary that are really useful to applying to some of the social problems? Because that's really one of the things that's at the heart of social impact bonds. Um, so the first thing I'd say is I don't think you have to be an actuary and have those skills to construct social impact bonds. I think it's, um, it's been helpful for me and, I'm, and, and for others in the space to draw on, not necessarily actuarial, but that, that, that sort of analytic approach to using big data to understand the problem. Yeah. And I think that's probably the, the, where it starts is who are we trying to target and what is going to happen to them if we don't fix it. Yeah. And that, that alone, um, I think there's been a lot of advances in the space and I think social impact bonds have been a useful cattle prod in that space to helping governments and other organisations to, to sort of interrogate data to, to create that insight. So where, where are their opportunities to, to fix things? Uh, so that's the first bit. And then the, the data is critical in understanding whether you've actually done anything useful how do you know what would have happened in yeah. the absence of the program? So that, that critical question of compared to what is at the heart of an outcomes contract, a social impact bond, because the, what you're trying to measure is the change and then there's money attached to that change in these contracts. So you've got to get it right and fair in, in attaching. Once you do attach sort of you know, money and, and you know, does the program continue and do we scale it up, you need to actually know that you've got the answer right. And I think that social impact bonds have highlighted how much opportunity there is to actually learn more in this space. Because there are so many programs we, that, that people try to evaluate, and, but we often evaluate things that are not done relative to that counterfactual, that baseline of what would have happened, because it's very difficult to sort of you know, see the ghost of, of, of the alternate reality, I suppose. So we've already touched a little bit on social impact bonds and outcomes contracts. Um, can you give us sort of the, the layman's version of like what, what is a social impact bond? We're not going to spend all day on that, but tell me sort of sure. what's, the, what's the basic version? Yeah, so at, at its core, a social impact bond or an outcomes contract 
is starts with really a, a generally a government, but somebody who wants to um, commission for a program or, or see uh, a program run that's going to create change. So the the general way we do things is we fund activities or services and we might attach payments to um, outputs like how many people were served or um, how many people finished a course or things like that. And the, the critical difference with an outcomes contract is it's a little bit more about the destination, not the journey, and trying to attach the payments to the, the outcomes. Um, and I, I say this quite regularly, but most non-profit organisations who are running these, these services can't afford to wait around to find out whether they're going to get paid for the work that they did. And so the social impact bond component is an investor will provide capital up front to fund the work um, while we wait to measure those outcomes and see what level of impact it has. Um, and if it goes well, then the investor would re be repaid their capital. And if it doesn't go so well, they might not be. So they're taking risk, performance risk, and they're also, I guess, providing almost bridging finance for the work to be done before the payment comes. So it's probably a slightly longer answer than you're after, but in a nutshell, an, an outcomes contract is a, a deferred payment that's based on the level of performance of a program in creating social change. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is to make sure that we're um, setting up arrangements where we're measuring the things that matter for in the lives of people that, that we're actually hoping to change through those services or programs. Um, and that, that we're paying on that basis, but recognising that those things take time. Correct. Services have to be funded to actually deliver the work. We want to measure to see whether or not we're achieving those things. And so private sector um, finance is providing some of that capital. Why are governments interested in it? What's the benefit for governments? So governments are interested in it partly because they are such large um, commissioners of and payers of, of services. So a lot of the work that's done ultimately is funded by government. So they have very large amounts expended on, on programs and they want to make sure that they're getting bang for buck for, for, you know, for all uh, our money, taxpayers' money. Uh, and they're particularly interested because they have very large expenditure items in things like health, justice, child protection and uh, a lot of the expenditure in those systems is on sort of fixing problems and yeah. sort of catching people at the bottom of the cliff, I guess, is the, the expression. So they are very interested in seeing if more work can be done, effective work can be done in that preventative space to reduce their very large expenditures in fixing problems. So uh, they, they, I think it started with that sense of how do we um, generate savings and the concept was we pay for the services out of the savings that are generated in other cost centres. Do you remember where did where did the concept start from? Do, do you know sort of even before the, sort of the Australian experience? Uh, it came out of England, so we we can sort of credit sort of some of the early thinking in this space to the UK. Um, and the very first social impact bond over there was the famous Peterborough um, social impact bond, which was focused on trying to keep people from reoffending, so keep people out of prison. And that, so that sort of that early concept of of measuring change in a robust way, and then making a payment based on the the level of that impact, and we've seen that that early experiment, I think, kind of create light bulb moments for governments, you know, around the world. Um, partly, sort of as a, I think, Treasury departments always get very excited by the idea of, well, if we do this and we can save more money, that's great, but also just that sense um, of how do we be better commissioners and um, stop getting in the way a little bit of, of innovation and good practice and try to create the space where people are really accountable for and really allowed to um, focus on the end outcome and be less worried about the, the, the journey, the, the cost and the, the micromanagement along the way. So it, did, it has created... Um, this really experimental phase, I think, over the last decade, as I said, starting in the UK, but then came to Australia, um, firstly in New South Wales. Um, but we've, yeah, we've seen that sort of 
the, that experiment or that, that concept being applied in a lot of different ways in a lot of different jurisdictions. And I think the thing that I remember from, from the Petersborough um, prison example, which is one of the early examples from the UK, uh, so a lot of the programs have also been about saying, well, hang on, are there interventions which over the long term will save governments money because they'll reduce expenditures across different, different government departments? That's sort of one of the challenging things, I think, as well, is there are limitations or there are challenges in the application of that concept because some of the best preventative work is done many, many years before the problem arises. And there, there, it would be a very patient investor that would wait 20 years to, to sort of measure an outcome from, from an intervention. So it does get harder when we're in that, you know, for example, you know, SVA has got a very big focus on you know, the very early years. So what happens in the, those first few years of life can really set a child up for, you know, all sorts of um, possible futures. And but I, but the outcomes contract concept is much harder to apply if you're sort of trying to do work with a one-year-old. You can't really wait around to find out whether they have a job or go to prison when they're twenty. So that that is probably one of the great great frustrations in a way that that I've grappled with is how do you find the an outcome metric sort of that you're measuring in the early years that is a good predictor of of something that happens decades down the track. So not not everything has to be an outcomes contract or a social impact bond. I think that the work that we do in that space creates. Um, a framework or a, or a mindset around around, and it's not just you know that that's happening elsewhere as well, but it does help to contribute to that search for better data linkages and understanding of of you know causations and and good sort of um, yeah, as you said good pointers to the future and that sort of curiosity and and analysis is useful regardless of whether you're attaching an outcomes contract to it. And I think it's been amazing to see over the last decade the, the, the change in the amount of linkage of data sets and those longitudinal sort of studies. Um, because the other thing is patience is, is really, and that's, that's something I, I don't think we do enough of even in the, even in the social impact bond space is, is having the patience to, to follow individuals that have been involved in whatever intervention for those 10 or 20 years. So you might have had a perfectly sensible metric and measured something after two years, but don't stop measuring, keep, keep going, come back to the data um, and learn from it 20 years down the track. That creates, or that requires um, discipline, um, money, uh, and, and also things like privacy sort of issues that would have to be sort of navigated. Like what does that mean to sort of get consent from someone to check in on how they're doing when they're... Yeah, yeah that's right. So there's, there's sort of, there's still a lot of, I think, opportunity there to sort of take that concept and go further with it. It's, I mean, it's one of the things that, um, that I often think about is about the, in the fixation on social impact bonds as a transaction is that mm. people uh, sometimes forget that it's also bred, as you said, it's a great word, a sense of curiosity among a lot of different people who've been involved in the transactions about... What data do we need to better understand these problems? Yep. How do you measure these things over a longer period of time? What does a genuine outcome look like? Yep. What are the real values of these things? What other data would we need to link? Yep. But also even just a curiosity about what data have we got that's in, yes. in um, systems that are already there? And that, that in some ways the transactions have been a catalyst for people to go and explore um, in a way that, that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. We, we, we have a governance process for our social impact bonds. We have a thing called the, the joint working group, which is terrific. We have government, the service providers, ourselves, all at the table. And I probably drive people mad in those joint working group meetings sometimes because I'm always going, oh, what if we looked at this? Or do we, how do, what do we know about the difference between this cohort and this cohort? Or how does that link to something else? And there is, um, so it's a two-edged sword. You, I think it's it's very powerful to go looking for those other um, lights that you can shine on on what's happening to understand why it happened. But doing that can create work. <laughs> so you do need someone to go and 
pull information out of their client files or, or, or do an analysis or whatever it is. And um, the, the more we can have tools that, that set things up so that that's easy, the better, easier that becomes and yeah, the more we can really understand why did a change occur? Did it occur just randomly or was it, did it work better for this group of people or that group of people or what's the, you know, what's the secret sauce that you can tweak the recipe? So I sometimes feel like we're just scratching the surface because we've got great data that, that you know, relative to most programs, social impact bonds create extremely well evaluated programs. But I'd be really hungry for the next layer of linking more characteristics of the individual and their, the way they engage with the program and there are other sort of factors into that data so we can, we can learn more. But that requires, I think, larger groups, more time, joining up data sets across different programs, those sorts of things. Um, so I'm a bit sad to be leaving in a way because I sort of see this next decade as hopefully a lot more of that happens. Um, got to give somebody some money to play and explore and knock down the barriers of how we can use that information and make it accessible, particularly accessible to service providers and other, other funny philanthropists so that they can get better, use, use their money in, in a more effective way. Often the information is there, but it's you know you have to be a researcher and go and, and go through all sorts of ethics approvals and things like that to be able to get your hands on it and use it. And that's just that's a that's a high barrier for a lot of people. What are your thoughts about how governments can actually make the data accessible to services and service providers so that they can better understand the impact they're creating in the world? Mm. How can we do how can we do that better? I think firstly it's Figure out why would, why would you do it? How would you use it? So think about the use case first of all. So, and then think about what that data looks like, and then solve the technical bits about you know the piping of um, is it in an Excel spreadsheet or does it come through a data set or how do, how do we deal with the privacy issues and all those sorts of things? So first and foremost, it's it's thinking about how you do it and start simple. I think. There are so many programs that governments already spend millions and millions of dollars on where service providers would love to get their hands on the data. I mean, a classic um, case, uh, so our most recent um, program project is the ARC social impact bond in Victoria. And the service provider, VACRO, one of the key things that they were really keen to, to do or to be involved with this um, project for, like they were brave, they sort of put their hand up for um, for doing this work was because they're doing great work in the reintegration space for people who've left prison, running a large-scale program, but they don't have any access to the data that tells them whether they're actually making a difference, are they doing a better job than other providers in the space, what can they learn from people who are doing it better. So they had this appetite to, to know just whether the work they're doing today, what, what actually happens to the people that they work with. And so that really fundamental starting point of programs that are already being run, that are already government funded, where governments already have privacy consents and, and know who the people are, that going that extra step and just saying there should be a feedback mechanism to, to sort of create some, just some simple consistent metrics that are played back to service providers publicly or maybe we start with privately and then you know, move to publicly because transparency, I think, is um, a wonderful thing but can be a bit scary. That, that's, you know, I think it's just that intent to start with something bite-sized and just build out from there. Yeah, and I think would, um, you know, would drive a set of behaviour from, you know, for-purpose organisations are, by definition, driven by their purpose and just having a better understanding of uh, how well they're meeting that purpose Correct. will will drive a good set of behaviour and understanding, you know, how they're uh, meeting that purpose relative to other things that are going on will, you know, be a motivating factor for them. There's, I mean, I'm a strong advocate for outcomes contracts because, you know, I've been doing that work for 10 years, but I think there is, I think we keep an open mind on what's the right level of, or how you best do these, these things. And I think that there is, space for 
some experiments where we actually test the hypothesis about what the, where the benefit lies with outcomes contracting. So for example, how much money needs to be at risk? Or is it just about this very thing, this having access to knowledge about whether you're doing a good job or not and having that sort of transparently reported? Because I think a lot of the response from the service providers would, is about knowing whether they did a, a good job and wanting to be better not that sort of sense of financial accountability like and risk and if I don't do a good job I won't get paid. So I think the profit motive sharpens things I think but from a delivery perspective I think it's the, it's the impact motive more than the profit motive. It just seems that it's not until you have a contract that's got money attached to it that people actually really really properly do the, the outcome reporting and, and analysis. But it begs a really interesting point, which is to say that, you know, have we actually done enough work? There's a very meta thing about understanding whether the, the contract drives a change in behaviour or what kinds of contract drives a change in behaviour from service providers or whether having the money at risk, you know, even the research around those things is actually fairly limited in terms of, you know, if you have exactly the same service provided um, and one is an outcomes contract and one doesn't, yes. you know, does that change the performance? Yes, you know, like but there are two layers there. There's what's the behavioural change at the service provider level and then yes. there's also from the, from the commissioner level, there is that sort of wise use of taxpayer money. So if Absolutely. they're only paying for things that work, then, then maybe they're more inclined or more programs will get funded if they know that they've got that protection, that they're not paying for things that aren't working. So there's, there's that two sides of the the contract that you need to understand the motivations and the benefits that are created. So let's go back to the beginning um, and sort of the beginning of your journey at SVA but also the beginning of the, the social impact benefit bond market in, in Australia. There were, the first round was actually a batch of bonds, it wasn't a single bond. We often talk about NewPin as being one of the very early if not the first bond to come to market but can you tell us a bit about sort of what was happening at that time when, when that first batch appeared? What, what, what was the circumstances around that? I think one of the interesting things is that there was bipartisan interest right from that very, from the get-go. So it started out under, you know, a Labor government and then it became a Liberal government and I think famously the story is that Mike Baird sort of went through the, the list of things in his, in his pile as treasurer and went, oh, that looks interesting, we'll definitely keep, keep that, that thing going. Um, and so, yeah, there were three... Um, proponents that were selected in that very first round. So one became the new pin bond, one was the Benevolent Society's Resilient Families Program and there was another one with Mission Australia which we were also involved with, came in later on um, in the sort of as a recidivism space. So yes, the so new pin was the first to market but you know there were, credit to New South Wales, they were actually trying to do sort of several things at once which was brave because none of them had been done before. Um, and there was the Benevolent Society sort of bond. There was, it was pretty much the same time as Newpin. So there, there was that early sort of signs of that experimentation of doing several things. Um, wasn't just in the child protection space, it was in, in um, justice as well. And um, having different programs with different metrics and different, different structures of the financing component. Uh, and, and all of them we were making it up as we went along. So, you know, that, that very early, um, early stage, there was, a, you know, there was a new form of contracting, there was a, having to figure out how these payments and measurements would work. And, you know, I do remember some of those early sessions where, again, we just did not have the data um, to start with to really know where we were, what the basis was that we were trying to change. So yeah, lots of, lots of um, very collaborative feeling of our way. It was very brave of all the organisations and government and you know, ourselves, everyone that was involved in that um, because it was a new way of working together. So the, these sort of contracts w did sort of shake up that the government service provider kind of relationship. Um, so government was much more accountable for data and referrals and things rather than just being the, the, the contracting party saying we'll pay you for doing this work and, and it took a lot of time and effort and I think all of them you know every state that started this journey has had that same it, it was new for everyone that was involved and even though you can sort of read something that someone else has done 
it never quite applies to the exact circumstance and if you haven't done it before yourself, you know, you, you learn best through doing, not through reading. Alice, I want to go back just to those, that early batch of those, those first three. But one of the things that SVA, as you know, it's part of our values to be open and ready to learn. And not all of the, those first round of social impact bonds were successful. Um, particularly, the, you know, there was a lot of challenges around the justice, um, the justice bonds that were being looked at. Can you tell us about like, what do we learn from, from some of those early stumbles um, in the process? Lots. <laughs> And I think you're right that they're probably being transparent. There should be more, be more talked about the things that don't work because there's so much you know, richness of learning in there. And I think I'd even go back and say um, the proposal phase is we should acknowledge that there's a lot of work that organisations do just to put a proposal in for one of these contracts because they do have to sort of think through not just the program design, but then the metrics and the logic and the... the it's expensive, it's, right? it's expensive, yeah. And um, that's one of my hopes, is that that phase gets easier because there's better data or there's better standardisation or we don't put the onus on the proponents so much to think things up that really maybe should be thought up by government beforehand. Anyway, so there's that sort of stage where not everything works. So in addition to the, the new PIN... Um, transaction that we were on, we actually put in another proposal at that same time uh, with a consortium of organisations, again in the justice space, that didn't get up. That was one of the earliest things I worked on at SVA. Uh, so yeah, so there was that. And then the fact that there were three that started in that batch, but only two emerged. So that mission um, program, Mission Australia One in the recidivism space, um, we went through a year's work and it didn't come out the other end as a, as a contract. And it did highlight um, you know, challenges that, so we, you know, we talked about but data, the challenge in that one was not data. In the justice space, we had access to you know, Boxer and they produced, they could produce things down to three decimal places for recidivism rates at every prison in, you know, in, in the state. Uh, so we had great data. Um, the challenge there was probably more a really critical one, which is the, a contract like this or a program like this needs to fit into the priorities of the department that's going to be the contract counterparty. So it's once it's moved past the you know the Treasury or whatever central agency is helping to create it and it's live, it needs to be meaningful and contribute to the policy considerations of, of the department that's um, that's that's participating. And I don't think that was the case, for example, in that first, that first one, because there were a lot of other things that were going on in that department at the time. There were changes. There was a new blueprint that came out for the, the justice um, setting, or the corrective services setting in, in New South Wales. And I think that project kind of became sort of a bit lost in that, in that setting, and it became harder to sort of operationalise it in a way that was going to be successful. So things changed around the initial concept, which meant that it was really not going to really work in the way that we all anticipated. And yeah, so there's lots of, I think, insight that comes from that. And there are others that we've been involved with um, that there was another one in New South Wales that we were involved with that didn't see the light of day either. Similar sort of issues. So it's got to have meaning. And I think that's one of the critical things with these contracts is starting with the end in mind. Like, if it goes well, then what? And so if a department doesn't come to the table with that sort of question in mind or that sort of intent in mind, then it can lose a bit of sponsorship and lose its way. What's, what's your observation about how those things need to work together, the central agencies and, and the line departments? They're critical. And I, th I think the New South Wales model where they created that Office for Social Impact Investment early on was, was really powerful and helpful um, because it does give you some continuity of the, just the technical knowledge of how to do it and you know, the contract structures and all the processes. Um, but also some institutional weight. Right. That's right. I mean, if you've, got the, yeah, if you've got the money behind it, the treasurer behind it, that, that sort of creates impetus as well. Um, and they can help to sort of 
disseminate sort of knowledge and, and, and you know, create momentum. Sometimes it's been best when there's been multiple departments because one of the things we've got to remember is we're working often with, with people, with population groups, and we're trying to help people whose lives are, you know, have challenges and they then touch lots of different government departments. So, you know, a classic would be like our homelessness SIB in, in South Australia. Uh, there, were, there was sort of involvement and, and data that had to come from um, and behind the scenes sort of splitting up of payments and things from three different departments, so health, justice and homelessness services because people who are homeless uh, are high users of the health system and are high users of the, the justice system. So, so sort of that, it creates that potential for a whole of government sort of human-centred view rather than a department sort of view. Um, and so Treasury can sort of sit in the middle of that and sort of knit some of all that, that together. Have you got any pearls of wisdom for, for governments about how they could help to, to grease the wheels a bit in terms of the way that, you know, is it the data linkages? Is it that, you know, the institutions? What do you think is the key to trying to get these things to be better understood, not just for social impact bonds, but just so that government is actually more responsive to the needs of the, the people that it's seeking to serve? That's a, that's a big question. And I know that that's something that, that New South Wales is grappling with, for example. So they're at an interesting point where they've now run multiple projects. And that sort of stepping back and learning, how do we, how do we take that experience as a government um, and think about what it tells us about not just social impact bonds and outcomes contracts, but the way we commission more broadly and the way we think about policy and... and um, in the way we run government. Uh, do I have any pearls of wisdom? I, gosh, that's such a hard one. No, it, I think it's, it does start with some of the, the, the data and that, that sort of sense of thinking about the individuals behind the data to start with. As, you, as we said, it's, so they're not just you know, consumers of health services or whatever, they're actually people who have a journey through all of those systems. And I think even just that is so powerful in the sense of Forcing us to think about that, you know, that 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 user experience, the journey yeah. of the touch points, and how do we streamline that and and make sure that we're treating someone as one person, not not multiple consumers of of product or you know services, even just sort of data sets and and, and understanding that it's the same person. I, I think behind government departments are people and. So many of the people I've worked with are so passionate about doing a good job. There are some great people in our public service. They are still sometimes just very you know, constrained by, their, by their, the, the, the challenges and the complexities of the system that they're in. And it's great when you bring people together in a shared project. So I think that is one of the, the great things about, about these contracts is that you do get people from different places that come together and work together for a period of time on a shared a shared endeavour, and that creates understanding and you know, knowledge and, and um, can just be a little bit of a window into how things can be done collaboratively and, and yeah, there's probably other, lots of other ways that can be done, but yeah, I think remembering that there are, there are people and trying to give people experiences and linkages and relationships um, can be really powerful. One of the things that um, I've, I've often thought the new pin bond, as we said, is one of the early ones. We talked a little bit about the Aspire bond. Um, both of those were quite, were quite successful. Well, did we do enough work at the start of these for what happens at the end of these contracts? Um, have we spent enough time trying to work out what that pathway is at the end? I think that um, the question of, as I said before, how do you start with the end in mind is something that we should probably do more of. I think the early, the early contracts were, it was a bit more focused on the, the task at hand rather than the bigger picture. But I think now the bigger picture has to be much more front and centre. Um, so was Newpin a success? New, yes, Newpin was a success. It helped a lot of families. Um, the Newpin program is still running. It's, and it's spawned a sort of scale up through being deployed in other geographies as well. Um, it was probably mostly a success because it helped to create the more of the, the, the capability set for doing more 
contract work like this. I think where there were greater opportunities for it to be more of a success was it did still feel like we got to the end and we were trying to retrofit where does Newpin fit within the childcare, child protection system. And so it was a bit more of a, oh, now what, rather than um, a sort of a, a smooth transition to a, to a sort of a, an embedding or a scale up in the, in the broader landscape. Um, so, yeah, I think there is scope, scope to do more of that. Elise, COVID threw the whole world into a spin. It also threw SIPs into a spin. Can you tell me what, what happened to the SIP world during COVID? Uh, yeah, lots of uh, frantic negotiations and discussions. So I think that the challenge that, obviously, at the first level, the, the people we work with um, had to figure out how to deliver services and support individuals in very different ways, which um, which created opportunities, but also meant that the work um, had to change rapidly. And we were worried about the impact on the underlying the, the, the beneficiaries that we were working with during that period. And then at the more kind of esoteric contractual level, we had to figure out how this massive disruption in the whole system um, changed all of those carefully calibrated assumptions that we had that sort of created fair payments. And, and so some, we often had to sort of just make changes to terms for, at a contractual level to allow the work to continue. So, you know, a classic example is our sticking together social impact bond. So that program supported or supports young people with barriers to employment into a job and helps them sort of stick at work. It's really hard to meet our sort of employment work targets in a context where everyone was sitting at home and there was no work and suddenly this massive um, sort of you know, crisis in, in unemployment. Fortunately, short and sharp, but you know, we were in the middle of it and we did not know how that was going to play out. And so I think the important thing there was that, firstly, everyone came at that with a very um, collaborative sort of approach, going, how do we figure this out together and make it fair? And we ended up for that one terminating the, the social impact bond piece, the capital, and gave investors most of their money back. Um, there was a bit of pain for everybody involved in this, in this process. Um, but the work continued, but on a, on a sort of a bit reverted back to sort of a fixed funding sort of arrangement. So government really, I think New South Wales that was, sort of stepped up and agreed to sort of continue funding it. But we couldn't continue that outcomes structure for a period of time. And then it's reverted back to being an outcomes contract, but on a different basis without investor capital. So that just you know, illustrates how a big disruption like COVID you need to allow for that in, in your planning to sort of hopefully these big shocks never happen. But if they do, what are the sort of programmatic um, approaches and then the contractual mechanisms that you have to deal with it? So one of the things that happens is we get approached very regularly by services saying, I want to do a SIB. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I think there's... So there's an allure in partly the fact that they're generally large scale and long term, and even just that long term is, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I hope translates from these contracts out into you know, more broadly is longer funding cycles so that uh, organisations can properly set up a program and allow it to settle into a rhythm and give staff some certainty of, of tenure and all those sorts of things, which I think have come with, with these programs. Um, and organisations are really interested in you know, doing something so they can measure, measure their impact and, and be part of that. Um, there is also, I think, just because they haven't done it before, a lack of understanding of how complex that, that process can be. And so I spend a chunk of my time putting on a black hat and telling people why they don't need a social impact bond or it's not the right mechanism. And I do sort of come back to often that sort of critical question like what, why an outcomes contract? Like why do you want to be paid this way and not under a traditional way? Or, you know, um, because unless they're really clear on what the benefits are of doing it that way, then it, it might be just more about, oh, is there just sort of a different sort of money that I can get rather than the strategic sort of question about why, why do it. And, and what do you think is the benefit of being paid that way? Um, well, I think it, it, it is that 
um, that freedom to focus on getting the best outcomes for the people that you're serving rather than um, delivering a project at lowest cost to according to a sort of a you know, particular set of criteria so it flips the, the the focus of the work to to sort of do what it takes for for the outcomes it means that you need to be working with everyone that 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 is in the program and not just sort of I guess just the people who stay around. So it, 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 this, you know, that's very appealing for a lot of organisations who really want to increase their impact. They want to know what the what the measurement is. They and they want they're they're confident enough in their um, the, the value of the work that they do that they want it to be understood what that value is. So th those are the benefits. I think is a bit more freedom in in the process and then contributing to that you know, that evidence base. So let's talk about the investors. Um, this must have been a, a bit of a curio for investors at the start. Who was investing in this at the start? Um, it's, it's the start and all the way through. It's been a real a real range of different investors. So you know, SVA has had more than two hundred different investors that have that have actually invested in our our so far eight soon to be nine social impact bonds, and they range from. High net worth individuals who have a you know a real passion for for using their money to to sort of generate impact as well as um, returns all the way through to to sort of large financial institutions superannuation public office superannuation funds and a lot of trusts and foundations that that sort of have a philanthropic um, purpose in life who are looking to sort of get you know double up bang for their buck so if they can invest the corpus of their their, their fund in into something that creates impact as well. So it's that quite diverse sort of investor base and who've got different needs, different risk appetites um, that we've, and it's been that way all the way through. And, and why do you think they invest? Why do you think they go to the trouble to investing in what is a pretty unusual kind of investment? I think, I think they're quite sophisticated. They understand what the purpose of, of this, this approach is. They, they, they like that they can contribute to um, meaningful change and that there is a path to sort of creating broader impact at scale through you know, the evidence base and the potential sort of implications for a broader policy setting. At just a really micro level, if you could get a decent return and generate something positive for the world, I mean, why not? So um, that's, that's, a very, that's a very appealing proposition for a lot of people. So, controversial question. It's fair to say that there are, there are quite a few people, and again, I think we're pretty transparent about this, who question whether or not private investment should be part of investing in programs, which are in lots of cases um, uh, being delivered to people who are um, you know, very marginalised or in, in very vulnerable and making money at, at the same time. Um, just as there are others who think that the private sector could deliver things better than, than government being involved, there are definitely people on both ends of that spectrum. Um, what do you think is the benefit of having private capital involved in these kinds of instruments? Uh, I think private capital in these kind of instruments, so if you've got an outcomes contract, private capital can be the difference between a pro project happening or not happening because someone's got to take the performance risk. So fundamentally with an outcomes contract, the government is saying we're protecting taxpayers ourselves from that performance risk and we're only going to pay you if it works. So that, starting with that premise, somebody else takes it. Some non-profit organisations can absorb that, that risk and, not, and get paid less than what it costs them for the work if it, if it doesn't produce results, but a lot can't and it would put at risk their, their broader operations and, and um, you know their existence if it was big enough. So, so it's it's risky. It's very risky for a sector that doesn't have deep capital reserves and resilience. So, if they're living on the edge, and if you layer in an outcomes contract, that could tip you over the edge. So, someone has to take that risk. So, that's where the investor capital comes in. And then, if it's if they're saying, well, if it doesn't work, we'll we'll bear the pain. Then it's I think it's reasonable to say if you're if you're if you're effectively you're providing that insurance, then there is a premium that's paid or a return that's generated for that. Um, if we expected people just to do it, just philanthropically and just take that risk that way, I think 
that could work in some circumstances and I think there is a great role for philanthropic money to, to sort of help particularly with more experimental sort of programs but you're never going to be able to do things consistently or at scale or, or have lots of them if you're always going to, to draw on the same well of, of philanthropic money. So having capital that has a return on it creates the, the opportunity for, for, you know, for many, many more uh, and larger experiments. And do you have a view on when private capital should and shouldn't be involved in these kinds of things? Yeah, we always size it based on the risk appetite. Well, understanding what the risk mix is. So, you know, how much um, risk is the, the, the government still bearing? Like how much of the, the payments are still on a fixed basis? What is, we, we talk with organisations, service providers a lot about their maximum tolerable loss. No one expects things to go badly. Everyone always, yeah, that's it. Everyone always comes into a project focusing on this is, the, this is what we're going to do and the upside and how good it's going to be. And it's like, okay, what if it really doesn't work for whatever reasons and you're in a circumstance in a few years' time and you haven't got paid and like, what's going to be... You know, when does the board have really com tough conversations <laughs> saying this isn't going to this isn't going to work? So really quantifying that maximum tolerable loss, and then all the other risk has to go to the investors, and we work backwards from there to say what's the amount of capital that is required to to bear that risk. Possibly the most hidden, maybe the most misunderstood role is the intermediary, which is the role that SVA has played throughout, the role that you've you've been playing throughout. Um, and what's the, the importance of the role of the intermediary? We bring it together and I think one of the benefits of an organisation like SVA is that we, we can be, I guess, almost like an, an, an accumulator of knowledge and <laughs> capability from the work that we do in one state which we can take to the next state, um, you know, the next program and so we can share that, that history so that um, it, it, you know we're almost like the bees going from flower to flower in a way sort of trying to sort of um, spread spread that, that information and that that capability uh, we can do things that are hard for service delivery organizations in particular to do but also governments to do in, in that sort of some of that technical skill set so some of the analytic sort of work um, and the structuring work uh, we obviously need to um, deal with the capital side if there are investors in, involved. So we, we've got a, a financial services licence, we structure financial products and we go out and we raise capital. So we, that very, in a narrow sense, that part of the, the transaction is, is our, on our to-do list. But we also, because SVA has got that sort of deep immersion in the broader social sector, we can add value to the service providers in sort of some of the sort of program logic and, and structuring implementation work. And we, we kind of understand from a government perspective what their requirements are in terms of making sure it, it works from their cost benefit sort of approach and those sorts of things. So I guess we're multilingual in, in the sort of the, the transaction. Um, my hope actually is that the sector as a whole gets gets sort of better at this and organisations, governments can lean less on intermediaries. I think it's tough because there's not enough of a market for there to be lots of SVAs and so it is quite concentrated and I think it would be better if there were lots of people who could do what we could do and we were less important in the sort of the, the solving all the tricky problems but at, at the moment and the role that we've played over the last decade is you know we we have sort of really helped to craft you know multiple aspects of of these transactions to bring it all together we've talked quite a bit about um, governments and the role that governments play and and uh, and particularly even the role of the office of social impact investing in new south wales and some of the different institutions but just to kind of really be pointy about it if a Premier was sitting here, what would you say to her or, or him about the future of this um, endeavour of social impact bonds? I think be intentional and learn from what's been done and understand how this sort of work can be applied more broadly. So, and I don't mean by that necessarily more outcomes contracts or social impact bonds, but I think 
understanding or, or reflecting on what was hard and has been hard to date and also what's been good. But I think the, it's almost more interesting to look at what's hard and why and then be using this as a sort of like the, almost the, the, the lab for, for sort of improving the way government operates more generally. So it's that sort of learn the right lessons from, from the work that's been done. I think in some instances it might be easy to look at some of the, the, the programs that have happened and go, whew, that was a lot of effort for you know, one program. Why was it a lot of effort? <laughs> what was the gap in the data or what was the, the challenge in the legislation or what was the, the challenge in the, the culture within both service providers and government and the way they interact that meant that it was hard? So, so similar follow-up, I guess we haven't talked quite so much about the Commonwealth, but over the course of the last, um, well, now seven or odd years, we've also seen the Commonwealth move into this space, um, including a, a, you know, a review by our, uh, that was co-chaired by our former CEO, Michael Trail, um, with the Social Impact Investing Task Force, and that, that SVA helped the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet on that work. Um, we've got a new government in Canberra. We understand there's some interest um, from the new government in this area, in social impact bonds, but also in impact investing more broadly. Do you have a message for the Treasurer? Is it, is it different from your message to the Premier? Because there is a slightly different role for the Commonwealth. It's not a fundamentally different message, but I mean, I think there is so much scope for the Commonwealth to be useful in this space. And I think it's been great to see them actually you know, starting to sort of start their own learning journey um, down this outcomes contracting path. Um, they've got so much data, it's so hard to use. Um, and because we've got the sort of the, the two levels of government, we've got cost centres that for an individual who's got challenges that, that straddle that straddle those two levels of government. So the more there can be collaboration between state-led initiatives potentially with Commonwealth data and top-up funding to make projects viable, yeah, it, it would massively sort of increase the, the envelope of what's possible in this space and what's, what, yeah, as I said, what's, what's sort of viable for, for state governments. Um, I think the Commonwealth can play a little bit of that role that I said we played in terms of being a bit of a, a knowledge carrier that can sort of go around the various jurisdictions. If the Commonwealth increases its sort of knowledge and can share and sort of stand, help standardise and and make things a bit more consistent around the, around the country as well, um, that would be a massive sort of assistance for everyone that's doing this sort of work. Is there something they should do first? The, the first thing that, they would, that you would like them to do that they haven't done yet? Figure out what the jigsaw puzzle looks like. And by that I mean, uh, and I think they've started to think about that, but it's a hard question. But it is, what are all the pieces that we need to make this work, and then, be clear about which piece of the jigsaw puzzle they want to build at a time. Because you don't have to build the whole puzzle at once, but if you go, okay, here's a bit of the jigsaw puzzle, which is um, how do sort of privacy laws or, or regulations or approaches um, help or hinder this, this work, and what do we need to do there? How do data linkage processes work? How do cross-jurisdictional... So there's all these different things and in particular sort of thinking about the interplay between the tax and the welfare data sets and how might they be useful and you know, it could be a 10 year journey before you actually get to the end picture but if you understand what the jigsaw puzzle end picture looks like then you can just do a bit at a time and build to it. My, my last set of questions are really kind of reflective back on sort of the, the overall 10 years um, and, and about your experience at SVA and about your experience in this, this world. I wanted to start with asking sort of, are there milestones or, or turning points that stand out for you from, from the, the decade or more that you've been working in this area? I think there have been so many milestones. Often they're at a project level because all of the social impact bonds that we've worked with, I think of them as my children in a way because they have this quite long gestation and then, you know, they they have their challenges as they grow up and eventually they leave the nest and, um, and you hopefully see them flourish without you. Uh, so it's, it's almost similar to the milestones in a child's life. So every time we launch, you know, when they're born, when we launch a SIB or when there's a sort of a, you know, a major 
um, reporting milestone. We get some, some data and can share it. Those, those sorts of stand out because they're usually they're shared sort of senses of achievement with a group of people within SVA, but you know, with, with, you know, more broadly than SVA. So I feel like I'm in lots of different teams around the country. Um, and yeah, I have wonderful memories of those milestones. Are there things that you thought that we would have solved by now, 10 years on? It's a long period of time in some ways and a really short period of time. Are there things that you thought in your early days, yeah, we'll fix this, and it still hasn't been fixed? I do think the data piece, it, it just sort of, it, it is a bit frustrating when we still don't have baseline data when a request for a proposal comes out from government. That's sort of probably my bluntest um, response to that is that does frustrate me because if we don't, if we don't articulate or understand, you know, what are we trying to change, then trying to sort of then hang a, an outcomes contract off that when we're measuring change, it's like, at least let's work out the baseline first. So that, that's probably one that I thought we would have done more of by now. Early on, I, I mean, I remember people sort of when we talked about the first couple of SIBs, you know, they're seven to $10 million. What about the $100 million SIB? What, what's the ambition for the future of, of this market, of these kinds of transactions? Uh, I think a lot of investors were very excited about the idea of $100 million SIBs. And it is a challenge because there are some larger, those institutional-style investors, a $1 million investment is not worth a lot of their, the, the due diligence time and understanding these quite complex contracts. So scale for the investment market would be you know, very appealing and would sort of um, yeah, really sort of turbocharge things. I think what I've come to realise is that Scale comes in many different forms, and I don't think scale in this space is large sort of investment like contracts. It's large social impact bonds. I think scale is in the the dissemination of the knowledge and the changing of the way work is done more broadly. And so that I think is is certainly sort of you know our ambition to sort of understand how we have you know like almost like a strategic approach to where are there um, approaches that we need to evaluate th and through something like a social impact bond which gives us insight into both the implementation challenges as well as the sort of the you know the, the level of impact um, so that it can more good work can get done and, and it can shape sort of the whole system uh, it can be difficult to get a, an individual program at a scale that, that creates a you know a large bond off the back of it because uh, often you're dealing with very specific populations, um, very specific work, and it's very difficult to just scale that up from you know, zero to hundreds of millions of dollars of spend um, in, a, in a short space of time. So it's a different ambition, I think, now. I, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot internally is that you know, a path to scale, there can be many paths to scale, and um, there's a difference between thinking about a program becoming very large and is even different to thinking about all the people who might benefit from that program being able to see it or, you know, a government um, changing the way it procures services across the board would be a, a, you know, a massive change and could be driven by an outcomes contract but doesn't mean that the whole system is, is then, um, uh, you know, one large outcomes contract. So I think there are lots of ways that we, we could potentially think about the impacts that um, could be created. Just projecting forward for a bit, what would, what would success look like for you 10 years into the future? I think that success would include um, having got past some of these data challenges that we've, we've talked about, that we just can tap into sophisticated data sets easily and use that to be finding and designing more and more innovative and, and um, targeted and, and well-structured programs and know what happens. Um, I think success would be that the general government procurement has much more of a focus on feedback of, of results and insight back into the, both the individual service providers and the system more broadly, that there's more transparency, uh, including um, sort of an acknowledgement that things don't always work and that that's okay because you have to try things and to, to find out what works uh, and stopping, stopping things that aren't working sort of saving money on that and spending more things on that, on that are. So a lot of those things I've just talked about aren't sort of social impact bonds specifically. It's, I think it's the, 
you know, the, the progeny of, of social impact bond work and the way it sort of goes back into broader system design at a government level and sort of practice at a, at a service provider level. Um, what's heartened you most over the period of time about the work in this space? Seeing it work and being able to go from anecdote to, to, to data and so seeing it work at the level where we get these you know, wonderful insights into how how you know, a program can can change people's lives on the ground, and that's always fantastic. And that's the sort of that's the stuff that you know really warms your heart. But it doesn't necessarily persuade ministers to change policy, or doesn't change the way programs are run. Um, so having sound evaluations and, and and data sets and those sorts of things gives you the clout to go with the. The, um, the human sort of side of, of what's happening. So that's been really heartening and that it gives me a sense that uh, good work won't, not go to waste, but good work will lead to more good work in the future. Well, Elise, I'm sure there will be lots of people who, um, more important than I, who will thank you for, for your incredible service. But thank you also for making time uh, to record this interview, to share some of your insights and thoughts about the future of the impact investing market pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, everyone. If you're interested in more information about social impact bonds or about SVA's work in this area, you can find lots of it on our website. There are a couple of specific SVA quarterly articles I'd really encourage you to look at, particularly about the new pin bond. Thanks for being with us. Related articles and podcasts can be found on the SVA quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly.